All right, man. Welcome to the intro for episode 61 of Crow 777 Radio Podcast. Jason Lindgren is with me. We are going to be talking about big data, which is basically data collection, which is one of the biggest things going in our uh, in our existence right now. Data is king now. Certainly trumps cash. Um, used to be said that money was king or cash was king. I think we can safely say now uh, that data is king. I see so many people online, and I reiterate this a couple times in the episode, uh, that have no concern that their data is being collected. The the most prevalent attitude I see is that, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. Uh, they can they can look at my data. I don't care. And we really need to start to rethink this. Um, data collection is giving groups, certain groups in this world, a power that was unimagined maybe 20 years ago or something like that, certainly around the turn of the century, it was only an inkling, a thought in somebody's mind, probably. Um, It allows people to have a time machine. They can peer into the future and they can predict future events and what groups of people will do. And, uh, you know, if they want to stage something, they can predict the outcome to a 90-something percent accuracy rate. It's been demonstrated. Simply taking cell phone data has been shown for a long time, for over a decade at least, um, that data that comes from cell phones can allow people to predict the future to place people within a you know a few meters of where they will be who they will be with what they will be doing that kind of thing and the average person again is probably going to think so what well i'll tell you what let's take for example some of the false news events that have gone on in europe recently think about this these false flag events are put up And then what do people do on the tail of learning about a false flag? Well, a lot of people go out to social media, don't they? They go to Facebook, they go to their text, they go to their cell phone, they go to YouTube, they go all over the place. And what does this produce? Well, for the people collecting the data out there, it gives them a real-time view of the reaction of the world to a false event. In getting this real-time data, they instantly know if the majority of people are falling for the nonsense, if the fear porn is working, if their little encrypted nonsense that they insert into the news so often with violence is fooling the majority of the people, it can also tell them, probably like something in the case of Sandy Hoax, um, that a lot of people didn't get fooled. But you see, even that is no big deal. Because understanding that you failed immediately and how, <clears throat> excuse me, how you failed gives you a real ability not to do it again. Since Sandy Hook, how many events have we seen that have been kind of that shoddy, that transparent, that see-through, that easy to pull apart as just nonsense, fear porn, false flag events brought to you by our world governments? How many? Not that many. I would suggest that probably data collection has a lot to do with that. But to move beyond the kind of controlling, mind-warping, false news cycles that go on every day all over this world. Um, Think about this. In the book 1984, for those that have read it, or the book Animal Farm, or, you know, any number of books like Brave New World that were clearly written by people who had influence around the Tavistock Institute that were writing basically blueprints or subscripts that have not occurred yet of where things might go or where certain people would like to see things go. Data collection paves that road so smoothly for them it can never be understated. When you begin to have a time machine and be able to predict what gene groups will do, what family groups will do, what any group of any kind in this world, the complete human landscape mapped out through data collection, with predictive capability, and you want to start to control the whole enchilada, this is how it's done. So as we jump into this episode, I would say to the average person, if you have been of the mind that who cares if my data is collected, maybe you should rethink it. Future generations are probably going to depend on what gets done with the data we give up so freely now, and at the moment it's not looking so great. But then again, There are a lot of people waking up, so let's jump in with Jason for episode 61 and look at data collection and big data, the new king in town. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 61. I have Jason Lingren with me, and we are going to be talking about big data. For all you folks out there who have never heard of big data, basically what it's referring to is data collection. 
data collection is going on at such a clip now uh, that the average person would be stunned, absolutely stunned to understand that they have been under full 24-7 nonstop surveillance since at least 2010. But the truth is those are only publicly available numbers and information. It's probably been going on since before the turn of the modern century. Um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple quotes going back, uh, going as far back as 1999 in a second. But to start to wrap your head around, you know, most people say, I don't care if people collect my data. It's no big deal. They can have my data. And in fact, the big data system works by opt-in. We all opt in to use services and all our data is collected. And it's not just online. You carry a library card, you carry a credit card, you carry a number of grocery store cards, you know, membership cards, all these things. Maybe 10, 15 years ago, these cards were more independent, but now they've all conglomerated because data is king. Data trumps everything now. The value of data cannot be understated. But for the average person to begin to understand, there are applications that even allow consumers, so-called consumers, not a great word, but people like you and I, um, to begin to do some of the things that the overarching conglomerates are doing. There is an application called HelloSpy that can be surreptitiously installed on someone's cell phone and allow you to track them without them knowing it. Um, and that's just what the average person can do easily with off-the-shelf the, the applications. It has been shown that cell phones, uh, you know, you opt in to use a cell phone, and by design, a cell phone has to locate you to work. But it has been shown uh, in many, anyone can look up these studies, that people have taken cell phone data and data mined it and put algorithms to it and they have been able to predict to an astonishing degree of accuracy the future of groups of people where they will be within something like a few meters uh, what they will be doing who they will be with this kind of stuff in 1999 ceo matt mcneely of microsystems was actually quoted as saying in 1999 you have zero privacy now this is 1999 I've been online since online was available. I think I really first started being online to any degree in, in 1994. So here, you know, a few years later, 1999, we have Sun Microsystems uh, telling us we have zero privacy now before even the turn of the modern century. In 2013, Google's chairman said that if we let him have all our data, he would give us in return ads that we wanted to see, free maps, free email, etc 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 before we jump in here with jason i want to make it abundantly clear that all the data that we go through here is publicly available and what that basically means it's a watered down version of, of what's really going on the truth is is we don't really have a good way to know what's going on it has been demonstrated that full data trunks like the one that comes under the oceans from uh england and places like that have been truncated and split off and are being collected by God knows who and God knows what. And that's 100% of the data. That's not just some of the data. When I was in school doing my internet technology degree at the end of the 90s, I wrote a paper on a program called Phalanx, where supposedly other nations were up in arms because the U.S. had a program called Phalanx, I don't know if I'm remembering that right, that collected every single digital transmission of every sort every day. Um, so this has been going on a while. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. You feeling any better? I understand you had a bit of a bug. I did. I'm, I'm almost over it. But, um, you know, we got through it and I've got my punch cards and floppy disks ready to go. Cool, man. So we have quite a list to get through here on the data collection and to try to begin to clue people in um, <laughs> about things like what it means to use Facebook and things like that. Um, but we also have a ton of viewer questions left over. So do you want to address that in the second hour, maybe? Yeah, let's see what we can do with this. And then uh, we'll, we'll tackle some more questions because we do have quite a few. Yeah, we have a lot. And actually, we'll run the big data into the second hour, and then we'll make a segment to keep going through uh, member questions. Anyhow, I'm going to throw it over to you, and let's jump into this publicly available information. And I cannot stress, um, and we'll probably point out during the course of this, that this is publicly available information. The truth is, is that probably the data collection, data mining, and algorithms that predict everything in our world are so far beyond the numbers and information we're going to throw out there. Yeah, you know, it's, I think we all out there, we know that 
this is being done. We know that data is being collected everywhere. But when you actually start looking at this stuff as all these numbers that I started going through, I was like, man, it's when you start putting a, a physical number on it, and these are probably wrong, they're probably low, it, it starts getting to be ridiculous. You, you realize we really are in some kind of massive surveillance grid that just has a, a nice silver lining around it that you, you're not paying attention to it, you know? Yeah. And, you, you know, another thing, you know, I talk so much about the timeline of history probably being jacked up and maybe truly history was uh, truly history was divided at what we call the dark ages, where we start to get a rewrite of what we consider modern history and whatever came before being wiped away. Well, this big data push really lends itself for this to happen again. Um, as an example, if you wanted to know something about the city of Dallas after the false flag event in Dallas happened and you tried to do a web search, it's nearly impossible to get around that information. And the reason I'm pointing this out, well, they did it with the lunar wave too. Um, when the lunar wave was posted, at some point there was like a record company all of a sudden or some producer that was named his stuff lunar wave. And I think even a tennis shoe by Nike, or I forget who did it, named a shoe lunar wave. So you begin to confuse what people can even search for in the way data works. But anyhow, I don't want to track off too far. Uh, let's go ahead and jump in and, and we'll get into these things as we get going. Well, what you're saying is actually very relevant to this because that's search engine optimization, which is extremely important. What happens is keywords get put into these algorithms so that when you do a search for a term, that's what's going to come up first. So that's actually very, very relevant and comes into part of all this. But let's go through what a definition of big data is, and just in case you don't know what it is. At its basic root, it is extremely large data sets that may be analyzed computationally to reveal patterns, trends, and associations, especially relating to human behavior and interactions. So this, this is not referring only what could be done with your data, but it also refers, like Jason was saying, how you use a search engine. It has been said that people never lie to search engines. Um, and if that's a true thing, which seemingly it probably is, you're really putting your heart on your sleeve every time you use a search engine because whatever you put into that search engine is being collected. If it's actually true, you know, absolutely true what you're looking for, um, then it gives them a real view into things. But I'll give you an example. I wrote articles or I wanted to write articles um, and see if I could push against the false news cycle. And what actually happened to me was when I wanted to write firsthand news, I wasn't allowed to get through the editor because the rules of the game were that you had to back up your story with two trusted sources, and they provided what those trusted sources were, of course. So to have an original news piece was nearly impossible. If you wanted to get paid, what you actually had to do was go to a major search engine, find a trending story that was trending that day, deduce what the two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight keywords were, however many keywords were pushing that story through search engines, and then you were required to use the same words in the title to rewrite it and then use the same couple of lines in the intro and rewrite it and then reiterate those keywords that you had located five to six times each. So basically what it came down to is someone made up a story somewhere and all these people out there writing articles were just reiterating nonsense. And it was by design and you couldn't get paid unless you did it. Of course, I walked away, but that's a pretty good example of what we're talking about here. Jason? Yeah, and it's it's like if you've read one story, you've read them all. And I'm, I'm sure anybody out there is going to understand what I'm about to say. You see a bunch of different stories on Facebook or, or news agencies, whatever. When you click on them, it may have a different flavor than the previous one. But really what it comes down to is they're all reiterating the same thing because it's all coming from the same source. So it's whatever narrative at the top that wants to get pushed gets sent down to the writers and, and sent out so that it all comes up on the same searches. Well, another thing about information in this way as we get it over the Internet is like in, in the old olden days <laughs> when we used to find a story or something, we could usually track it back to the person who wrote it. Um, in the case of the articles that I was writing, there was really no way in most cases to determine where the hell did this information even come from. And when you began to see what the keywords were and see the gematria and just know that you were being forced to reiterate complete nonsense and fear porn and all this other stuff, um, it's a whole new world world out there because truly you can't even really track it back to where it started. No, and and there are very few real journalists left. They, they call themselves that. But the truth is that the majority of them are getting handed what they're supposed to be working on. And um, as far as the, the bigger name ones, they, they're chosen because they're going to 
toe the party line. Right. Well, we've already shown that, you know, I think we're down to a couple of massive corporations that own 80 some percent of all media information systems, movies, music, that kind of thing. So, you know, darn well that there's not going to be some independent reporter in there who's really shaking things up. That's just not going to be allowed to occur. No. And this whole thing is nothing but business, really. I mean, big data is considered a top business priority. In doing all this, I, I just found so many statistics on this, it's, it's, it's insane. So, internet research company Wikibon says that big data is a $50 billion business in 2017. That's just messing with the data itself, not the interactions that go on as a result of it. If I had to venture an educated guess, I would say it's probably many times um, more valuable than that. I mean, if you begin to consider all the data that's collected when you shop, you go to the supermarket, you use your food club card, you use your credit card, you use any card that collects data and consider. Everyone consider now that all our cards have chips. When you are forced to stick your card instead of swiping it into a machine, um, what do you think's going on there? Well, of course, it's pulling all the data off the chip and it's inserting new data on the chip. But anyhow, keep pushing, Jason. So the insane amount of data that is being stored seems to largely actually not be being used at all. The one field that I kept seeing repeatedly mentioned that has plenty of jobs to be filled, and there actually aren't enough people for it right now, is analyzing all this data for whatever purpose some particular organization may want. So basically, if you're looking for a job and don't know what to do, uh, here you go, man. Go to school for, for this uh, data analysis thing because you'll get a job. So I think there's a distinction to be made here. I think we're looking at different levels of what's done with the data that's collected in the more kind of corporate average American world. Uh, it may be true that there are large stores of data that haven't been tapped. But uh, for my money, I am beyond certain that the main collection at a higher level than just, you know, mundane corporations trying to remarket or do other things, um, that there are computing systems that are screaming at such a speed that the average person would be amazed to understand how many gazillion functions are done in a second, probably a whole different type of computer to peel through the data. When you consider that the main data trunks coming in from places like Europe have simply been split and 100% of all that data, that's everything. Text, email, internet, phone, all of it uh, being split off and collected. Um, at some point, that data would just be too much unless you were using it. And it also begins to point out a new problem. For the average person, like look at me using a telescope. I always have a storage problem. If I'm going to shoot in HD um, and do these other things, you're constantly needing more space and more backup space to both store and back up what you've done. When you begin to consider the systems that have to be in place to take that kind of data, I mean, it begins to draw a picture for you. And I guarantee you at the highest levels, this stuff is being used. Well, in our transhumanism episode, we actually, at the very end, started talking about the supercomputers that exist. I didn't really see a lot on what they were being used for, but putting two and two together, uh, it looks like they may be being used to shuffle through, all, at least some of them, this insane amount of data for specific uh, algorithms, you know? Well, right. And there's a couple, you know, the, when you look at the publicly available information, the idea is computers are better if they're faster. Um, and I've had a problem with that for a long time. Of course, if you can do a gazillion, you know, calculations a second, that's a useful thing for somebody. My point is, is you have to have more than just speed to get through this kind of data. Um, you're probably looking at neural nets or some other, you know, there's, there's all kinds of computer systems that are talked about that are more closely aligned with how the human brain works and all these other things. It's hard to know how much of this is being used and what they're being done, but the, you know, the proof is in the pudding. You're peeling off every bit of data probably as far back as at least the late 90s that's going on in the world from text to cell phones to every bit of communication, you have to have a way to use it. So, I mean, it, it kind of by necessity, it dictates that they do have some kind of a system that really can utilize what they're collecting. Absolutely. Now, to put things in perspective, here are a few big data facts that I found. Right now, as of 2017, approximately 2.7 zettabytes, and that is with a Z, of data exists in the entirety of the digital universe. And what is a zettabyte? It is one sextillion bytes. And we entered into the zettabyte era in late 2016. 
Yeah, and again, I would guess that probably the the powers that be were in the zeta bytes long ago. But just to put a frame of reference, a petabyte is a million gigabytes. A zeta byte is a million petabytes. So that begins to put a frame of reference. And again, if I had to put an educated guess at this, I would say these are very low numbers. When you consider a data trunk coming from Europe being collected, I mean, what are they doing a zeta byte every hour? Who knows? Um, but I suspect that these numbers, these publicly available numbers are very low. Now, this is interesting when I found this. From the beginning of human history that we can get through, up until the year 2011, all of the data that humanity has ever recorded, it is now being exceeded every year by a very large factor. Basically, it's geometrically increasing every year. So everything all the way up into 2011 was kind of like, it's this much. Then after that year, it's like, well, we started doing all that in a year, and then it started shrinking down every six months, every couple of months, every couple. And now we're up to like every couple of days because there's everything is communicating with each other. Every single little thing you do is being recorded somewhere. And that's information. Well, again, this is really going to begin to lend itself to the false history narrative. Um, when you begin to consider if this, I mean, I don't even know how you, you come to conclusions like this. Uh, clearly, it's a roundabout estimation. There's really no way to know for sure, but we assume something like this is going on. If you consider that every year now we're surpassing the entirety of history's data um, from the beginning of whenever that was, consider web searches. At some point when you do web searches and they're, you know, they have to get through all this data and return some search, and of course there's a whole other side to that we'll talk about. Um, at some point when we've gone through enough years of trumping everything that has come before, pun not intended, um, the searches that you get are really going to start to refer to modern information and less and less to supposedly historical information. And again, this sets aside, you know, whenever a false event or some other nonsense you know, national or worldwide world event happens, how a search engine is plugged if you use keywords that relate to what happened in that event. That was a bit convoluted, but anyhow, Jason. Well, and to back up what you just said, 90 plus percent of the entirety of humanity's data as of today has, has been created only in the last two years. That's how much information that all of these devices, things, all these communications, whatever, it's pumping out so much that it's just blowing away the amount that was recorded before. <laughs> you almost have to wonder with that much data um, being collected and then served back up, what percentage of the information that we get is even has any validity to it? In other words, how much of it is not 100% artificial? I would suggest that tons of it are 100% of our artificial with agenda behind it nonetheless, but anyhow. By 2018, it is said we will be generating 50,000 gigabytes of data every second. And that is an immense change from 1992, which is where the statistics I was looking at came from, when we only generated 100 gigabytes a day. God, these numbers just seem so very low to me. Um, but anyhow, keep pushing. If I, if I had to guess, it's probably many times that, but anyhow. Well, I think they, they've got it down where they could literally track and predict any one person, as long as you are existing in western culture somewhere that is connected i'm pretty sure they could they've got it down pretty like in the high 90s i would say of predictability but anyway 235 terabytes of data has been collected by the u.s library of congress as of april 2011 now that's six years ago so it's probably much higher by now yeah you would imagine um well go ahead i'll let you keep pushing through the idc estimates that by 2020 business transactions on the internet, which is business to business as well as business to consumer, will reach $450 billion per day. So this is kind of an important bullet point in my view, and we can see echoes of this in real life. As an example, in the state that I'm in, Rhode Island, um, they've just informed people that DMV, they shut down a bunch of DMVs. And when I was in California, they had been reducing DMVs, and it was a real pain in the neck to go deal with your car and enter into all those nonsense contracts we've been forced into, or I guess in a, in a more fair way, we've opted into. But here, they're removing the DMV, stating that they're going to take it all online. So you can see where total ultimate control comes in. There's going to come a point when the services that 
those of us that are old enough to remember, we would walk in and face to face with a person. That's going away slowly but surely. Um, there's going to come a point probably when libraries are gone. That's going to be a big deal because digital information can be changed at the push of a button. What's written in a book, that's not so easily changed. The same thing applies when you begin to consider about what's going on with the DMVs in Rhode Island. But even more so, it segments society because the poorer side of society that may not have access to computers and all these other things is really beginning to feel the crunch of all this. Not to mention the rest of us who are now opting into these services and finding nothing but frustration because there's really no person to talk to. You have to get online, make an appointment, get online, state what you're going to do. I mean, it is coming to a time when the shackles are going to be on big time and, and the chains of those shackles are going to be simply that we do everything online and we have no control over it. <laughs> now, Facebook, and this is one that uh, hits just about everybody, it stores, accesses, and analyzes 30-plus petabytes of user-generated data. <laughs> oh, Facebook, let me count the ways. Facebook <laughs> is one of the most insidious things that was ever developed for the web. I do not accept that the people were told that own it, own it. I do not accept that it was some organic, oh, this guy just happened to invent it. Um, we have covered in past episodes how people from certain walks of life and certain institutions like Tavistock were hovering right there as ARPANET was going on, understanding that social media was going to be a big part of it. But Facebook is so insidious because for the simple privilege of being able to say hi to my friend in a different country or good morning, grandma, here's a picture of my cat or whatever unnecessary communication we're interested in doing, we have given Facebook basically the data the map of our lives, where we've worked, where we've gone to school. A lot of people use it to allow them to track them. So during the day, they're checking into the Cheesecake Factory or they're checking in to work or, you know, it's all publicly collected. But even more so, everyone in your family, everyone you know, this is such an incredibly powerful data set that it will never be able to be described properly. I have used in the past this example to try to kind of illustrate what we're talking about here. The data that's collected from Facebook when data mined with certain algorithms can probably deduce when you will die, where you will die, what will kill you, and the time of day it will happen, give or take an hour or so. And most people may roll their eyes at that, but I assure you, the power of algorithm-driven data mining is insane. Often, in the first job I had out of school, I uh, had to do with ads where they were simply trying to determine what ad on the internet would serve better in Texas on a Tuesday if it was raining. The data that they used to try to deduce this information seemingly looked like it had no relation to the outcome of what happened on the tail of the data mining. And back then, it was called a data cube. And I've said this a million times. I don't know what you call a million-sided object or a billion-sided object, but we are so far beyond data cubes that it's not even funny. And that was back in 1999, and they were patenting the technology in the corporate world at that time. Well, here's, here's a thought for everybody out there. Any sincere user of Facebook who just uses it to its fullest potential, putting up all, all your meals that you, you eat and all the places you're checking in and all, all your likes and all that, tie that in with... Instagram and Twitter, as well as your cell phone tracking you everywhere you go, pretty much they've got the entire map of any one person's existence on any day-to-day -day basis. Now blow that out over humanity. It's a complete map of most Western world uh, humanity. But, I mean, let's consider Matt Landman, our last guest chemtrail activist, um, he had proved conclusively that they were running algorithms on his efforts to make chemtrails more understood. And uh, he would serve things up where tons of users wouldn't even see it. Other people would see portions of what he posted. And this goes to show you the power of what we're talking about here. Um, it's really kind of an insidious thing to think that if I want to have a public communication and I put it out somewhere, that the public really doesn't have even access to it. 
it's served up in the way these people decide to serve it up. Um, when you look at my YouTube channel, so many people come and say, my video won't stream. Well, is that because they have bad bandwidth or is it something else? At some point, when I get enough complaints of this, I have to consider that it's something else. But I have had endless emails from people telling me they've been unsubscribed from my channel, not having wanted to be unsubscribed. This has been going on for years. Probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of contacts I've had informing me of this. So at this point, are we to say, well, it's just a glitch in the system, or are we really looking at hands-on manipulation of information? I would suggest the latter. <laughs> yeah. Here's another one that'll hit most people right at home. Walmart handles more than 1 million customer transactions every hour, which is imported into databases that are estimated to contain more than 2.5 petabytes of data. You know, I would just on the tail of this, there's a new Walmart commercial out where it's running uh, Aerosmith's Dream On as the music. It is one of the creepiest commercials I ever saw. I'd love to see some channels go out and grab that commercial and break it down. Anyhow, that's just a side note, but um, it, it really kind of plays into what we're talking about here. Go look at that commercial and uh, and what's your gut tell you about it? Take it apart. Look at it. What do you think's going on there? But anyhow, Jason. More than 5 billion people are calling, texting, tweeting, and browsing on mobile phones worldwide. So basically what's happened is we've crossed the threshold back in the days in the United States where the telephone system used to be referred to as Ma Bell. This kind of thing was almost certainly going on. But even when you look at the old movies, there was a real sense for the average American that they had the right to privacy, that if someone really wanted to listen in on them, they needed a search warrant and all this other stuff. Who knows how much of that is true? But that was the overwhelming kind of sentiment back in the late 70s in this country. Fast forward to now, everybody fully knows when they send a text, it's being collected. They fully know that the audio from their cell phone calls, not only the GPS and all the other data that goes with it, has been collected. And we're all good with it. And I would ask, you know, an honest question here. Why are we good with this? Seemingly, we could use these services if enough people stood up and said, you know what? I have a right to privacy. As a matter of fact, there are all kinds of foundational ideas in America, at least, that start to talk about your right to privacy. At what point did we just kind of throw that aside where nothing official was ever said, nothing real was ever done, where just corporations began to go wilder than a pack of jackals and decide that wasn't true anymore? Anyhow, that's my two cents. <laughs> now, the, late, the only number I could find on Google was this. In 2008... The official number is that Google handled 20 petabytes of data every day. But there's absolutely no doubt, since that was nine years ago now, that that number would be significantly higher. Yeah, I don't even know how they derive these numbers. I mean, if it wasn't Google themselves providing them, um, and then they would, of course, lie in their own favor, um, how would you even come up with these? I mean, these are estimates. But again, I would state for the record, I'll bet you it's so many times more than, than what's being stated here. Yeah. Now, of course, big data collection all comes down to one very important thing, and that is the Internet. And the Internet is now something that is fully integrated into our daily lives as far as any westernized culture. And that doesn't just mean America. A lot of countries are, would be considered westernized at this point. But it hasn't actually been that long, has it, Crow? I mean, you and I are both old enough to remember a time before all this was around. That's right. I mean, Jason, if you really think about it, most of us weren't even online till 94. But anyhow, go ahead. No, I didn't. I didn't get online till the late 90s. So but we are all generating content that is being saved somewhere with every little click of the mouse or swipe and tap of the smartphone. So let's explore a little history here on on what the Internet is to see where it came from and how we got from computers with punch cards and tape reels to this massively entangled electronic behemoth that we interact with lovingly. We lovingly embrace this behemoth every single day. And just, you know, for the average person, this is the one of the funny things about the Internet is it has become so synonymous with our lives that most of us, even the people who have the knowledge to understand how certain things work, we don't even think about it. As an example, you snap a picture with your phone and you send it. That's been collected. But what you may not be thinking about is the metadata in that image. 
not only has that image been saved, so if it's an image of you or your family or whatever, uh, which later will be used to do the kind of Tom Cruise Mission Impossible stuff when, when you're walking down the street, they can do face recognition when they're starting to really lock down society based on all this data collection. Um, that metadata has the author, the time. It has so much information. The average person should go do a web search for metadata on images and other things, videos that they make. Even my Word documents, when Jason and I get ready to do these shows, I'm always aware that when we're making the list of things we're going to cover, um, it auto-saves every few seconds. But in a Word document, there's almost everything you could ever want to know about a person saved in the metadata. Of course, I have sidestepped all this and I use nonsense data, but it doesn't undo the fact that they know exactly what computer that came from. But anyhow, let's jump in and go down this road, Jason. So the internet came out of the minds of some very clever thinkers in the early 1960s who saw great value in allowing computers to share information on research and development in the scientific and military fields. This all, of course, had to do with controlled universities and, of course, the military-industrial complex and its various organizations that are all intertwined and that had been way back. I kind of look at it as World War II is when all these things really started getting intertwined when when the when all the money really started being thrown at all this stuff I, I don't know if you have a different opinion on that crow but it seems like around world war ii is when all these things really started to solidify well it's a short time after world war ii that all the military and the you know the cia and all these places and the universities the, the major universities like mit become inseparable but to point out um, when I went through school to get my internet technology degree, it was one of the first courses. What they were teaching the people then was that there was a thing called ARPANET that the military had come up with. And the, the idea behind it as an early predecessor of the internet was that it was decentralized communication. In other words, when you send an email, it goes out in you know a thousand directions or whatever. And the first packet that reaches its destination is the path that's used. The idea behind this back then, we were taught in school, was that if a city was blown off the map in the United States, it wouldn't matter because emails are decentralized. So hitting any strategic target would not stop communication. So that was the beginning of ARPANET. But in a second here, Jason's going to get into MIT. This is some sketchy, sketchy stuff. Very few people are aware of who controlled URLs, the naming of web addresses, basically who controlled the early internet. Now they've got ICANN and these other organizations that begin to obscure who owns it. But clearly, clearly MIT was lock, stock and barrel in bed with Lord knows who controlling this all early on. And as a matter of fact, you can go back and look that the French actually had a huge problem with what was going on because they didn't think the Internet should only be in English. And I think the response they got at the time was, OK, France, go ahead and make your French Internet. You know, it was like, screw you. We own this. Um, but it is so sketchy how a university was basically in control of how everyone got web addresses, how the searches were being done, all of it. Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. All right, to start this all off, an American psychologist and computer scientist at MIT named Joseph Carl Robnett Licklider, who was known as JCR or Lick, first proposed a worldwide network of computers all the way back in 1962. He called his concept the Galactic Network. He later moved over to DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which I'm sure everybody out there has heard of. And in, in this is in late 1962 to head the work to actually start developing this thing. Another gentleman named Leonard Kleinrock of MIT, and later on he went to UCLA, developed the theory of packet switching, which was to form the basis of Internet connections. Lawrence Roberts of MIT connected a Massachusetts computer with a California computer in 1965 over normal dial-up telephone lines. While this showed the feasibility of wide area networking, it also demonstrated that telephone lines, uh, circuit switching is what it's called, was actually inadequate for the networking needs. Kleinrock's packet switching theory was thus confirmed. Roberts moved to DARPA in 1966 and developed his plan for ARPANET. These early visionaries, as well as quite a few others, all contributed to what would become modern-day Internet. 
Right. So I think earlier I was saying ARPANET when I should have been saying DARPANET as the earliest kind of military applications to decentralized communications, which became ARPANET. Actually, when I first began to use the Internet, um, remnants of ARPANET were still visible. Um, it was a communication, uh, no, no images for the most part, just text, um, though images did come into it later on, where universities could share information. And there were all these EDU URLs and other things, but there were search engines that were peculiar to the university systems where you basically most people didn't have access to them things like veronica and gopher anyhow just to clarify that but keep pushing through jason the original arpanet was brought online in december 1969 it initially connected four major computers at universities in the southwestern united states ucla stanford research institute ucsb and the university of utah this was carried out under a corporate contract with a company named BBN that uh, they were out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, under a man named Bob Kahn. By June 1970, MIT, Harvard, BBN, and Systems Development Corporation, SDC, in Santa Monica, California, were then added. By January 1971, Stanford, MIT's Lincoln Labs, Carnegie Mellon and Case Western Reserve University were added. In the following months, NASA Ames... MITRE, Burroughs, RAND, and the University of Illinois were connected, and the list just goes, grows heavily from there. So very, very quickly, this thing just became huge. Well, what this really begins to demonstrate is the complicity of the powers that be in our world, understanding what was about to happen and forcing it through. Early on as the Internet was developing, and I was working on the Internet, we were told, oh, it's going to make all these things easy. Well, you want to know something? For the early Internet from about 1998 into the two early 2000s, everything was many, many, many times more difficult. As an example, we were I was in a company that was doing some of the first banner ads for the Internet, and I was the video guy um, or ended up being the video guy. And the whole thing there was how can we get video down a phone line when a phone line wasn't, you know, there's no bandwidth on phone lines to do any of this. We were actually serving video at three frames a second and calling it video, forcing the Internet forward. It's almost like most inventions in the world prove themselves as useful and get implemented. The internet was the exact reverse of this. It had all this potential, but to get there was going to be a royal pain in the butt. And I mean, big time. And nonetheless, we all pushed through. We did all these things. We made everything so much harder than it needed to be to get to where we are now. But when you begin to look at the names that Jason just outlined in this list, um, UCLA, well, that's the UC systems that is referred to in Big Bang. The UC university systems have one of the biggest money markets in the world uh, and retirement accounts. Um, that's how big it is. Jason and I have demonstrated that there was complicity between MIT, UCLA, and many of the major prestigious universities with the military-industrial complex and the CIA and other shady places like Tavistock from at least the early 60s, which means it probably preceded that by, I don't know, into the 50s anyhow. We would have to guess. My point here is, is look at the players that are bringing the Internet to bear. In my view, they understood exactly what was coming down the pike, and that's where we are now, where all this data is being collected. And yet the rest of us have viewed the Internet as just the service we use when it is really so, so much more. Anyhow, Jason. So the Internet was designed to provide a solid communications network that would still function even if some of the sites went down. If the most direct route was not available, routers would direct traffic around the network with alternate routes, as you had mentioned earlier. Now, this early Internet was used by computer experts, engineers, research scientists, librarians, and military people. This was, of course, all text at the time. There was no beautiful graphical user interface and point and click, <laughs> poof, you're there. You had to actually know what you were typing and what you were doing. I still remember the days when we were switching from search engines, as you're describing them here, text only, uh, from EDU-based systems like Veronica and Gopher um, into some of the first browsers, Netscape and Mosaic. I think there was one called Mosaic, if I remember, back in the day. And really what you saw was professional universities, libraries, you know, research facilities using the Internet, but it was slowly beginning to shift. And then, you know, before long, we had AOL and other things allowing people to get on. But here again, Jason has reiterated that the main idea 
was to decentralize communications, which is a funny thing when you think about it. Um, why does the civilian world at large need a decentralized communication system? You see, the whole basis of putting together a communication system in this way is built off the idea that if a major city gets destroyed, no big deal. Our email will still find its destination. Think about that. Anyhow, Jason? So email came next in 1972, added to ARPANET by a man named Ray Tomlinson, who was of the from the corporation BBN. Now here's a bit about BBN, because anytime I see one corporation doing major things, I always look into them. Started in 1948 as an acoustical company, it is highly intertwined with MIT and, as of 2009, is wholly owned by Raytheon. Raytheon, of course, huh. is a military-industrial complex company. It has always been a military contractor, primarily for DARPA. Two of its more well-known public incidents that it had dealt with were with performing acoustical analysis for the dicta belt recording used as evidence of a conspiracy regarding the assassination of JFK, as well as examining the Richard Nixon tape with the 18 and a half minutes erased during the Watergate scandal. So here you see it. Uh, you know, this is the military industrial complex. These are the people who are going to be removing freedoms from this world as generations go on. And it's all built around the Internet at this point. But look, JFK and Richard Nixon. So you're looking at false news. These guys are even, you know, acting like they have some historical thing that mattered. But yet the thing they are pointing at JFK and the supposed Nixon tapes, that is False news. That's what it is. These are the events that shape our history and draw our timelines. And so there it is. Man Raytheon, military industrial complex, DARPA, ARPA, Tomlinson, BBN, all these people that are involved in what we use every day called the Internet. These are all military industrial complex. And this is, you know, these are the early signs. We're living in times where we can see the early signs of the screws being tightening that will eventually eliminate most of the freedoms people my age can remember. Right. And without needing to go into further detailed history, and there is quite a bit more, it's obvious that everything to do with the creation of the Internet had almost solely to do with the military industrial complex. Therefore, it is directly connected to the same kinds of people who were and still are controlling us to this day. In some ways, this is no different than music and movies and the way we have broke them down before. Uh, we pointed out, Jason and I, in past episodes, how RCA was so kind of prevalent in all of the movies and all these other things that happened. We pointed out that RCA was militarized before World War II and that it was never unmilitarized. We've pointed out what became of music in the 60s, who those famous rock stars we all love to worship were. Well, they were the children of military industrial complex and royal bloodlines. That's who they were. That's what they were there for. That's what they were there to do. So what we see here is a furthering with a further reach of the Internet being implement, you know, implemented now in the same way that early movies, entertainment and music did back in the day, which we have covered so much here. Um, go ahead, Jason. So we go all the way through the 70s and 80s with it basically expanding within the military-industrial complex. But the Internet starts becoming a commercial venture around 1992. By 1995, it is now a full-blown money-making enterprise with Internet service providers, or ISPs, such as AOL, Prodigy, and CompuServe springing up. And who out there <laughs> who's, you know, over 20-something doesn't remember getting bombarded with AOL disks for years and years? That, you know, so many of my friends early on when the Internet was young, uh, AOL was the way in. Um, and it's, you know, even in movies today, they constantly joke about Prodigy. Or if you have an email address that says CompuServe, which I don't think exists anymore. I don't know that for sure. But, you know, that that was the joke that was going on. But, you know, you can remember maybe back in the early 2000s, as we would come up on Christmas time, they would start pushing all these ideas about Black Friday and how all these retail corporations hadn't made their money and it was all dependent on what happened at Christmas and how much of those transactions was going to occur online. And if you go back and look at that data, you can see how the media machine is pushing everybody to go use the internet and then the internet vendors are responding by making all these deals and free shipping and doing all these things. And what's going on here is the frog in boiling water. Slowly over time, people like my nephews 
that are of a young age that have come up doing everything online. Before long, when all us old suckers turn into dust, the next generation behind is never going to have known a time when everything they didn't do was on the Internet. And that is really when full control is going to start to be brought to bear, in my view. So anyhow, um, keep pushing, Jason. So software and technology megalith Microsoft moves into the Internet game with the complete integration of its web browser, Internet Explorer, into Windows 98. What I've always found funny about that is Internet Explorer has always been the shittiest one out there. Microsoft is, of course, the playground company of elitist scumbag Bill Gates, who has ties into everything, really. Well, it's getting so much worse now. Um, you know, we, we were always told, I forget what the story is, a, a big Bill Gates genius thing. What was it that he took his disc to a football game or something and left it on every seat or some nonsense, which is how he captured so much of the market. Then there was the, all the old stories about how he stole his operating system from the Apple guys. But here's a little known thing that most people don't know. Um, for a long time now, if you use Macintosh, you pay more for almost everything. That's driven by data collection because it is perceived that um, people from universities, like if you go to a university, it's always Macintosh and the graphics labs and all these other things. It's starting to switch a little bit now, but not too long ago, you went to a university, it was pretty much Mac driven. But anyhow, they figured out that the demographic would pay more for the for the Macintosh stuff. But Macintosh from the outset was collecting data at a staggering rate, and it is claimed, and it's hard to know how much of this is accurate, that when Windows 10 recently came along, it had geared up to start to show down what Apple had been doing all along in terms of data collection. So there's some food for thought. Hmm. Now, personal computers in the home connected to the Internet became the norm from this point forward, like late 90s, pretty much you, you're going to see one. Within the next few years, of course, mobile phones and then smartphones connected to the Internet would join in as a common item in everyday life. And you pretty much don't not see it now. Yeah. And, and you know, it, during the course of the research I did, um, actually, as I just sat down, I went back through one of the books I was looking at uh, that was published recently on uh, data giants. And uh, he was talking about his refrigerator in the book. And he came to realize on the tale of all the research he did to write the book that his refrigerator wasn't for cooling food. It was a data collection device that kept food cold. And as I, I began to look at what he was breaking down, I mean, it's going to be pretty quick here. Your coffee maker, your, you know, all your appliances apparently are headed for the Internet. Um, it seems like even sitting here now where the Internet is so prevalent, why the hell would anyone want their washing machine on the Internet or their, you know, and what's going to happen is companies like Cox are going to provide all these handy cell phone apps where you can control the temperature from Spain or when you're on vacation, you can turn your laundry on or your lights on all these ideas. But you see, the problem with all this is is we are just generating more data that can be mined, which makes us more controllable. And not only that, we have no control over all these systems we're using to control everything in our daily life. And really, that's the main problem here. Absolutely. So as you were just saying, what else in your home is connected to the Internet, sending off data reports day after day after day? This brings us to the concept of what is known as the Internet of Things. And what is that? It's the internetworking of physical devices, vehicles, buildings, and other items that are embedded with electronics, software, sensors, actuators, and network activity, which enable these objects to collect and exchange data. To boil this down to the absolute bottom line, we're being spied on on every level. I mean, there's no getting away from it. That's where this heads. I mean, this is kind of like the 1984 existence. We're looking at the early days of that. In some ways, we're seeing the pre-echoing of what was that Tom Cruise movie, The uh, the Minority Report, mm. you know, where he's walking down the street and they're scanning his retina and serving up, you know, targeted ads, yep. particularly for him. Um, but, you know, anyone who's seen The Minority Report understands that the ads is like a bad joke when compared to everything else that is going on in that society. See, in that society, they are data mining in a way. They're, they're claiming they use people who are special with ESP abilities, but really what it's echoing is the ability of data mining. You see, they can predict that this person's going to commit, commit a, a murder tomorrow um, because of the data mining that they're doing. That's really the allegory going on there, and that's really the pre-echo in this bullet point, in my view. Yeah, no, there's no doubt of it. And that, of course, is taken, again, from Philip K. Dick, who, while he didn't get specific details exactly nailed down, he was getting these concepts in the 1970s pretty accurate. 
Yeah, I, I want to look at that guy at some point. I mean, so there are so many th- movies and all these other things attributed to him. I wonder if he was a real dude or um, even in some of his movies uh, that are attributed to Philip K. Dick. Uh, Something Radio is one of the movies. Uh, they make a whole point of, of showing how the military industrial compra- complex grabs an author and takes over his writing and doesn't allow the public to know that the author is no longer writing. Um, in some ways, Philip K. Dick stuff feels like that to me. But anyhow, not to track off here. He feels like he was a real person, but goodness only knows if he was being fed information, which may have explained all his uh, drug abuse and all that sort of thing. But anyway, a study published by Gartner, which is an international research firm, estimates that by 2020, there will be approximately 20.8 billion with a B internet enabled devices that store, analyze and transmit data to humans as well as to one another. A large amount of these objects will be items that you interact with every day in your household and the normal world around you. Numerous common items are probably things that a lot of people would never even suspect have already been connected to the Internet of Things. Two words here that I would like to throw out. Surveillance state. Yeah, there's no getting away from it. Um, 2020 seems to be a big number. It shows up in a lot of movies in kind of ominous ways. But this is the thing. If, in fact, the data mining as I assert, can predict the future. When you get to a certain point of so many things giving you data and such a complete map being drawn of humanity at large, um, it really does give the people who have that data and know what to do with it the power to know what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month. And that lends itself to complete and, you know, just undeniable control over the masses and um the way things are going we're not talking about one country you know in some ways america is the stepchild of all this but whatever can be done in america can be done just about anywhere with few exceptions i suppose there may be places in africa um, that don't have internet yet and the more i see those places the more fortunate fortunate i consider those people to be and you're, you're you're listening to a man who has a degree a technical degree and that's the really the way i feel about it at this point Have you ever been out in the mountains recently where there literally is no cell signal and it's harder and harder to find it? But I've done it. Like when you're literally somewhere where there's no transmissions being or or very minimal transmissions being broadcasted at you, there's a different feeling, man. If you're perceptive in any way, shape or form, you can feel that. Yeah. And it goes beyond that, because what I realized, uh, having been in that very situation you just described and numerous times in the last few years is that you begin to realize what your mind is doing. When you're in the world where there's a car radio, XM, Sirius radio, you know, internet, phones, all these things, like 90% of your day, your mind is pulled away to all these artificial constructs. When you're in a place where there is no technology and there is no signal, you begin to realize that the human abilities of your mind begin to focus on the environment. And what's the environment? Well, that's a natural system. You see, when we get back to the world, it focuses on artificial systems. So you can really see in a way um, just the technology existing and being available is really a way to retard the human mind if you follow that train of thought. Yeah. Now, just to kind of nail this home for you folks, common items that were and are connected include refrigerators, television sets, as well as cable boxes, which were found to have microphones embedded in them years ago. Washing machines, clothes dryers, dishwashers, clock radios, toasters, coffee makers, security systems, air conditioners, lawn sprinkler systems, cooking appliances, thermostat systems, and even certain kinds of LED light bulbs. As well as I found a specialized kind of shirt with silver fibers embedded in it that will connect to your smartphone device and interact with it. I mean, it gets to a point where the potentiality for someone to be in control of access will be able to deny you the most basic things in in human existence. Um, If you consider when you wake up in the morning and you want to get online, what do you need? Well, you need a computer with an Internet connection. You need an account. You need a password. Uh, In cases like Cox, Cox regularly locks people out of their accounts for this, that or the other things. Most recently, um, not too, too long ago, they were locking uh, a bunch of family accounts because the kids were illegally supposed supposedly illegally downloading movies um, and they were locking the accounts. Well, when your whole house 
is connected to the internet, you can see the potentiality for abuse here where, I mean, what? Do they deny you water? Do they say you can't wash your clothes today because of some supposed thing? Or does it just simply become a money thing where you have to pay for access to everything? It's a hard thing to know, but the potential for abuse is at a level that we have never witnessed in this world as far as we know. It's it's ridiculous, man. If they want to know what you're doing, they'll know. And, and that's the bottom line of it. And I'm I'm starting to foresee a time here where even the cheapest appliances, whatever it is you happen to buy, is going to have some sort of connection to it. I don't think we're there yet because you can still buy some real cheap junk at Walmart and all that that doesn't seem to have anything to it. But I think the time is coming very soon where it's going to be connected no matter what you try and do. Well, it almost seems to me like it's a good good opportunity for people who are technical to start developing services where they'll go into someone's home and take things offline. Sure, you know, take the refrigerator, take it offline. Just go in there and, and do what you got to do. Um, the problem here is, is that things like electricity, we've already moved to smart meters, and you can see the overwhelming control. But there's more to it than that. You see, smart meters aren't good for people. I was a radio man in the Marine Corps, and I'm keenly aware of being witnessed and taught so often in the Marine Corps that RF signals are not good for the human body. Certain types of radios we used, you had to be way the hell away from the antenna. There were a number of dishes where you did not stand in front of them because the description you were being given is it will cook you from the inside out. The point here is, is that all this crap works on RF signals, wireless, and that's by design. And these RF signals are not good for the human body. So, I mean, there's even that on top of the potential for abuse here. But anyhow, Jason, we're real close to the top of the hour. Do you want to do a rundown about what's going to happen in the second hour? And I'll, uh, I'll preface by saying we are going to have a segment that still goes through members' questions. We have so many member questions. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. Give a breakdown, and, uh, and we'll wrap up the first hour here. Yeah, next we're going to get into a rather large list of common mainstream uses of big data that you may and almost certainly do encounter every single day. I've got quite a list of that, uh, as well as just all the things that the amount of data and the, and the things that are being done that you're doing every day. We're going to break those down and just, just how many numbers of these things are being looked at every single day. And then we're going to take all that and start talking about machine intelligence, artificial intelligence, and the big push for that. And, you know, I was doing a search for that last night, and there's stuff everywhere. This is definitely being worked on. Now, whether they're going to be able to achieve something like C-3PO or data from Star Trek or something like that, I don't know. But they are definitely pushing the envelope here and trying to get machines that will at least mimic human behavior to the point that you may not be able to tell the difference anymore. Well, I'll tell you one thing. This episode has been a little more dry and data-driven, but it's an important episode, and here's why. Um, so many people I run into online in the course of doing the things that I do that have the attitude, so what? I don't care if they're collecting their data. I haven't done anything wrong. That's almost invariable what people say. I have nothing to hide. Well, in fact, you're looking at data collection in the wrong way. If you were in a war zone and you were the only guy without a gun, would you think that it was important that you had a gun to protect yourself? And this is kind of a crappy example now that I'm thinking about it, but I'll go with it. Um, would you want to be the only unarmed person where you're on a field where everyone's shooting everybody? What's going on here is all this data is being collected, and it's not being collected for your benefit. That's all there is to it. It's being collected by places like the CIA, the Tavistock Institute, the military industrial complexes, the universities that have been bed with these places since at least the early 60s, if not World War II, who knows? knows. Um, and what's being brought to bear here is the ability to peer into the future, the ability to know every single thing about every genetic group, every family group, every group group there is in this world. And when we understand that there are people who would like to control the whole enchilada, you really need to step back and take a new view of what you do with your data. When I go into Rite Aid and they ask me, can I have your phone number so I can give you 3% off on this purchase? I say, no, thank you. You know what I do next? I hand them a $20 bill because I am not going to swipe my card or stick my card in so a chip can be read and more data put on that chip for the next time I use it. The only place I ever use that card is to go get more cash from the bank. I pay cash for everything I can with very few exceptions. We're just trying to point out here that the average person with the attitude 
I don't care if they collect my data. You really need to rethink that because 1984 is coming down the pike. And if you want to be one of the sheep and animal farm, give up your data freely. Anyhow, that brings us to the top of the first hour for Crow 777 Radio Podcast, episode 61, talking about big data. We are really going to break down quite a bit in the second hour. And then again, we will address submitted questions from the membership over at Crow 777 Radio.com. Hope to see you there, man. Cheers. 